1: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Hey, 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 it's Feo Jay. Welcome to The Motion Champions, an extra special season of The Motion, a debate podcast where two guests with conflicting opinions engage in an intellectual and fierce tug of war to sway my vote to their side of The Motion. Win The Motion once? Fair enough. win the motion twice against a fellow winner of the motion now that is a champion so join us as we determine who the true champions are and to have your emotions set in motion in a way they never have been before peaceful protests don't work honestly i was wondering whether protests at all work like as i started researching but i guess Today's episode will be comparing and contrasting the effectiveness of peaceful protests against other forms. And arguing that peaceful protests don't work, we have Chilli. Hello. I'm ready to go. Let's go. She is the amazing co-host and author of It's a Continent podcast. And the book is out now as of the 7th of July under the same name, so make sure you check that out as well. On the other side, we have Tash, who is a corporate lawyer and content creator.
0: Hey guys, nice to meet you or greet you.
2: (laughs) As an icebreaker, I wanted to know, linked to our topic, what you think the most trivial thing that you would protest for is? Just to give some inspiration. I don't know if you guys are fans of Wagamama, but they took the char hand off the menu and they're just constantly always making menu changes that don't need to happen. They literally find out like the best thing on the menu and then they just take it off. And I really don't understand. And I would literally go out and protest against like Wagamama menu changes.
0: I feel you. I think our protest against people who pretend they love going to the office and of course, everyone out. go. Like, no one likes going to the office. Stop lying,
1: please. You know what? Link to that. I'd protest unnecessary work drinks. Like, I'm sorry. Like oh, we're in yeah. the- <laughs> It's not that deep. It's time to go home. I want to put on my Netflix. I don't need to not eat until 9pm because I'm drinking. Thanks.
2: As a special twist this season, whoever gives the best icebreaker answer gets an, I'm going to let you finish. Or as you might recognise it,
1: I'm really happy for you. I'll
2: let you finish. And that is an opportunity to interrupt once and once only during the first section of the debate. This episode goes to Tash. Just because I am a semi-recovering, not really trying to recover alcoholic, love a good work drink. It's free <laughs> drinks, like I'm not gonna say no to that. I actually think that's the only reason why I like going into the office. So it kind of goes <laughs> hand in hand. With all that out the way, it's time for the opening statements. A rough summary of what you think and why.
1: A riot is the language of the unheard. You might be surprised to know that the guy who said this was Martin Luther King Jr., who seems to now be the peaceful protest poster child. But actually, he was actually about that life. This sentiment drives home the idea that actually peaceful protests are only effective within circumstances that are conditional. We do need to have Protests that aren't peaceful in order to shift the current conditions. So another quote from Kwame Ture is that in order for nonviolence to work, your opponent must have a conscience. The United States has none. If the state or whatever structure you're protesting against doesn't care, doesn't have any sympathy, then a couple of kumbayas is not going to change their mind. I
0: don't have any quotes. I would say that the debate is, is framed in absolute terms. Peaceful protests do not work. We have to understand that a peaceful protest is something that doesn't operate in a vacuum and is combined with it could be embargo, it could be disorder as well. Framing it in a, in a much wider context it allows us to see that a peaceful protest is more than just achieving one absolute political objective. Alongside this, as well, looking at a protest as something which people can partake in, you can see peaceful protest as something which allows people to actually. Get up, march, sit down, talk, converse, debate, etc. And something which is nonviolent allows people to do that.
2: Love both your opening statements. As always, just gonna dig a little bit deeper, stir the pot, and get you on your feet with some questions. Tasha, you kind of almost read my mind because my first question that I
1: want you both to answer, surprise, surprise, is what defines a peaceful protest? In terms of peaceful, that's something that's not disruptive. I would think that a protest that is not peaceful is a protest that is disruptive. It may include what some people may describe as looting. It may also describe you know, what Extinction Rebellion was doing, for example. So causing disruption to transport networks, kind of irritating people, but actually making people more familiar about the cause. So I didn't know anything about Insulate Britain. I didn't know about how deep the insulation crisis was until they, you know, came on the scene. And now cost of living's going up. I'm wishing I had better insulation. So maybe they did have a point after
0: all. For me, a peaceful protest is, it goes beyond marching the street. It goes beyond picketing, it goes beyond boycotting it could be conversations it could be it could be challenging a curriculum it could be a teacher sitting down in a classroom and saying actually our curriculum says x but let's discuss further let's go on wikipedia so seeing it in such wide terms a protest could be as little as a conversation to as big as a massive march
2: similarly but in a different kind of vein what does a successful protest look like
0: a protest is successful if it allows that person who's protesting to express their view, their frustration, to express their status and allow people to understand. And it is also successful when the recipient can at least hear and understand. They may not empathise, they may not sympathise, but if they can get on a journey or start their general understanding, that is successful.
1: I would say a successful protest is when there's like a shift in some kind of policy that would mean that what the person has been protesting about something happens so then there's a change as a result of the cause that they've been fighting for essentially.
2: Now that we've got those kind of definitions out of the way and added some context to this debate, I want to hit you with some numbers. Chinny, you know, men lie, women lie, but numbers do not. <laughs> and when it comes to stats, peaceful protests do seem to be more effective. I think between 1990 and 2006 about 300 protests were studied and I think even more so were up to 2014. And they both found that nonviolent protests tend to be twice as effective attracting like times 11 the number of participants. I think Tash mentioned in his open statement, how much wider I can't fight, for example, like you're not gonna find me at a violent protest, even if I might want to because I can't fight. Whereas a peaceful process you don't really have those entry requirements. Apart from like the number and the turnout, peaceful protest averaged on about three years, whereas violent protest averaged on about
1: nine. I would say that you would normally have the peaceful protest kind of towards the end. But what has started that shift in policy, it's that initial push in Accra in the capital city of Ghana, 1948. At first, it was supposed to be a peaceful protest against the way that the Ghanaian soldiers were treated following World War II. What was supposed to be a peaceful protest where they would kind of queue up and sign petitions, the Brits reacted by the police actually shooting into the crowd. This then aggravated the crowd and then it meant that violence ensued. The Brits obviously shook at that point. And then that eventually culminated in, in Ghana being the first sort of black African country to gain independence. This is an example of when the Ghanaians were like, okay, let's just like, do this like, peacefully, respectfully. But the person who you were actually like, protesting against didn't have respect for you. So there had to be that escalation. I'll let you finish. When
0: people are protesting, they tend to be depressed and they're not able to control the narrative. So if you can't control the narrative, if you can't shape how things are framed, you have to be extremely cute with how you market yourself and how you market your campaign. A lot of occasions, especially in recent history, when you do see true violence, vandalism, death, injuries, the discourse of violence tends to hijack the true message. The Black Lives Matter movement recently, like 2020, 2021, rather than policymakers properly discussing the experience of Black cultures and Black, black individuals, violence was used as a scapegoat to allow policymakers and decision makers divert the true efforts or true conversation to what what needed to happen. Another example could also be like the Mark Duggan's initial march in 2011 and how that went to protest and riot. And again, rather than speaking about police brutality, racial profiling and, and how we actually, I don't know, police and apprehend individuals, the violence and the vandalism was used as a scapegoat to, again, divert conversations away from this. I think most people appreciate passion, etc., but once it hijacks a true conversation, that's when you have an issue. No,
1: I, I appreciate the point, but I think that um, not everybody has access to be able to have those conversations. And as we say, with the violence being the tool that sometimes that's the only form of protest that some people have they're not able to have conversations with policy makers or politicians and also most of the time these politicians like here in the UK let's be real they don't want to do anything about it so they're just going to scapegoat anyway sometimes no matter how the picture is framed they're always going to there'd always be something else that they'll pin it on. I
2: think it's really interesting kind of the language that we use. For example, I don't know if you saw this video about circa 2020 of this um, black woman and she's like, you're lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. I had actually never seen the full video and she gives a lot of background into how obviously the 400 years, but then even in the 50 years after that, where black people were able to build their own communities like Rosewood and Tulsa, they were still burned down like this is post-slavery if you look at colonialism as well the oppressor speaks the language of violence like that is literally what they're fluent in and i think it's really interesting that when you kind of want to combat that or defend yourself it becomes you know a narrative losing control where the the narrative has been controlled by violence and then someone's basically expected to bring a knife to a gunfight. We're not allowed to speak back in the language that it was built on.
0: Implicitly in, in your question slash statement is that maybe a lack of regard for human lives as well. So I understand that, yes, the oppressors speak the language of aggression, like the language of the West and the US's, the US Army and all the naval bases. Of course, we understand that in challenging that through violent or non-peaceful protests, we're asking individuals, fathers, brothers, mothers, uncles, grandparents, etc., to potentially risk their lives, risk their livelihoods, risk some of their limbs, their mental health. So alongside trying to challenge, combat, etc., is that is that worth the expense of like human lives as well? That's what that's, that's one question you can't overlook. Yes, you want to make change. Yes, sometimes you do have to be forceful for it, but like my brother shouldn't die, my dad shouldn't die. I think that that's one thing to answer as well. And secondly, even if we do believe that violence is the only language those in power understand, those in power are extremely fluent in that language. They have so many tools, they have so many weapons. That conversation is is almost like a PhD student having a debate with a year six student and it doesn't work. And we've seen examples with revolt all the time where... A few nations, when they have fought back with violence, like example Haiti for instance, we can look at their economy lot, We can look at how how the world responds when they have massive natural disasters. So, when the smaller country, when David does respond to Goliath, in the real world, it has massive repercussions, which cost lives, which cost livelihoods, which cost economies, and. I
2: think that's a great answer. As you were speaking, I was just thinking of um, Kyle Rittenhouse. I hope I didn't say his name right, because I don't care about him. And um, how it kind of, unfortunately, does detract from the main thing because of the way the systems are set up. You have a white 17-year-old go to protest, shoot two people dead, and he is walking free. Like, no matter what your intention was before... I think the moment when that happens, it does kind of make you think, Chinny, I'm interested in what you have to say back to that.
1: Another example that I'll bring up is the Boston Tea Party. European or European violence, as it were, they're still lauded as heroes if they respond to violence with violence. The way the Boston Tea Party came about was that a group of colonists threw like, basically damaged properties into the Boston Harbour, and that was because the British Parliament wanted to lower taxes. When the... People in America, which used to be a British colony, destroyed property. They were like, oh, okay, oh, that's fine. Oh, let's let's walk away from that. Which is why I say that it goes back to the fact that if they have sympathy or they have a conscience, then they'll listen. But if at the root of it, they don't care, then why would they care if you then speak their language?
2: I do emphasise, but I do think that public perception is really important when you're trying to get more people onto your side. When you see, for example, that picture of the black women like, standing still And the fact that you're nodding because it comes to your head like so quickly, right? All the police, and then there's this one black woman and she's not resisting, she's not doing anything. And as I say that, I'm like, ugh, respectability politics. (laughs) Hate it. But at the end of the day, the amount of pictures that come from these protests. And if you look at the ones of people looting versus the ones where you have police, like for example, at the Sarah um, Sarah Everard protest, Fighting against people that look so innocent, I think it's so much easier to someone that doesn't really have as much foot in the fight to sympathize with that kind of image of violence against a peaceful party versus violence v. violence. It's like an eye for an eye makes the world blind. In the literal sense, you cannot actually see in a visual sense who the kind of bad guys are, even though like we know it's harder to see from like a public perspective. And I appreciate everything you're saying and the point you made about, you know, my father shouldn't die or my brother shouldn't die, I found it very emotive. But I think when we're looking at whether what actually works, protests in general tend to be very like reactionary, whether they're violent, whether they're non-violent. After every example of like, say these big marches, whether it was like the women's march or the um, march for our lives, it's like almost instantly afterwards, a legislation is passed that is in the opposite direction or the opposite belief system in which the process was for. So, for example, in the Women's March, two days later, Trump signed the abortion bill. So I think, you know, it's easy for us to kind of see these big demonstrations and think that change can actually happen. But when it comes to the legislators the bills and like as Chili spoke about what a successful protest looks like, the change isn't happening. I think it's one of those things that if you do not hear you will feel and I think it's very cute to see process and stuff like that but it ends up dying down. That kind of long-term urgency isn't really there with like the marches. I
0: feel like in a capitalist landscape, capitalism, oppression and violence are all interlinked and money. I think the implicit question is is violence then the answer? And I would say no, that there's other forms of peaceful protest which equally hurt people as much. And that could be to their pockets. So a good example is with the Russian war in Ukraine and the West. Yes, there definitely are supplying arms, which is an example of a violent action. Another thing which people think are really effective are also sanctions and Chelsea Football Club, for instance, having to go up for sale. The, the examples you spoke of were the Women's March. I don't know how long was, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, etc was peaceful. But my next question is well if they marched for six months a year, if they decided that all women, fifty percent of the US population decided not to trade in a certain way, I would like to think that legislation would, would be more effective in their favour. So to answer your question directly, there's other ways of peaceful protesting which can bring about that answer. I
2: think that leads me onto my question to you, Chinny, in the sense that, as I said, both protests, violent and non-violent, tend to be reactionary. However, I think, with violence it just makes it so much easier to lose focus earlier and I think if we look at how much train drivers are trained paid even these people are striking and striking and striking because it's working train strikes literally affect the UK you can really really feel it there's no violence involved it's just like you need me to drive your train I'm going to show you what life looks like when I can't drive your train so that's actually making impact and you know staying very close to the root of what the protests have started because of. And I think the, the reasons why strikes and like unions and stuff like this work is because they don't just strike when the iron's hot, they stay strategically striking. It has that kind of long-term
1: urgency. And I think it's that that is the reason why they see successes. I'm pretty sure that it must have been either last summer or something like that. Pretty Patel put in a legislation that would limit disruptive protesting or perhaps if you were shouting too loudly at a protest then they have the right to shut it down if the government were not threatened by those sort of action I don't think they would have taken up such a strong stunt and also it's quite difficult because if you say I'm gonna boycott this brand then you find out that the parent brand owns like everything and you can't really do much about that and that's supposed to be a peaceful protest but that doesn't really work as such the suffragettes were a group that we all remember now and I mean suffragists also existed but no one really talks about them they were like the quiet lot they were the peaceful protest route they wanted to do things in a way that was still legal however this didn't actually include the working class women whereas the suffragettes with their kind of Anyone could take part, it was a bit more open. This lady threw herself in front of a horse, like. Emily Pankhurst. <laughs> yes, you know, she threw herself in front of a horse and she died, do you know what I mean? Like, these people are actually so passionate, but it doesn't really matter to them if they die for these kind of causes. I think we live in a very different era now where we're like, huh, like these kind of protests, we just post on social media, like no one's actually about that. Like, people went to the Black Lives Matter to post on Instagram, do you know what I mean? Whereas then like people actually pay for these things with their lives because they were that they were that passionate about it.
2: I think for every suffragist I think there were like five hundred thousand suffragists and like 10,000 suffragettes, but you definitely want to check that. But there was like significantly less suffragettes than suffragists. And I think it kind of works in both your favors because I guess in terms of accessibility, it's easier to be a suffragist. But then I guess if you look at the number and the impact that suffragettes were able to make with a smaller number, then it makes you think of kind of like the impact. And as you said that, I remember, I will never forget Emily Pankhurst's name. And I think I was 14 when I first learned about her. As you go into the main debate, the areas of conflict I'm having, I feel like we're doomed from the get. Time and time again, peaceful protesters are labeled as looters or as violent. If you already think I'm violent and I can choose peace or choose violence, and I feel like violence is gonna be more effective then I might as well be violent. And then I'm also like the distraction and how it detracts from the cause as well. You are officially free to directly rebuttal each other. It's time for the main debate.
0: One point issue was the idea that individuals don't have, have access to capital or finances to maybe do, I don't know, boycott things. But if we also look at the value of our labour, the value of, of our preference and our footfall, we have power and capital to actually still impact people financially and economically. Let's say I'm, for argument's sake, feminist or something like that and i'm trying to debate or challenge my husband or my partner on on gender roles in in the household for instance purely by refusing to conform to gender norms refusing to cook food refusing to look after my child and lying down doing absolutely nothing there's value in that labor there's capital which can be extracted from that labor which will surely or ideally impact the partner i'm living with and if you think about that on a larger scale as well Many people who may not have access to tangible cash, if they look at the value in their labour, or they look at the value they give to the people they work for, simply by stopping is a way of being able to access more financial means of protest, which is still peaceful.
1: So that only really works if you're unionised, though. But like what I meant by saying accessible is that like not everyone, in terms of how those with lower capital are less likely to be able to talk to those policymakers to be able to have access to that, as opposed to have access to boycott. I guess the boycott point I was making was that we're such a consumer-driven society that if you tried to boycott Cadbury, for example, after watching the documentary on like the coca farms, you then have to boycott craft. Do you see what I mean? Like everything is so interlaced that it's really impossible to just boycott one brand anymore. And then also like if people did do that, no one is, again, because of the, the way our society is set up, people can't just stop working like that unless they are part of unions and that's why people are so envious of train drivers because the government has worked to get rid of uh, and dismantle unions so that it's quite difficult to do that these days.
0: I I think to counter that point and I think you've you've almost played into it you said that massive organizations and companies are scared of unions and there's a reason why there's less unions in the UK and less unions in the the way the Western world because they're so effective. Looking at history, looking at the present state of play of unions, that's another great example as to why peaceful protests are so successful and why massive organisations and political parties have tried to suppress them and limit the numbers of, of them.
1: I would say that peaceful protests only work as if the institutions that you are protesting against essentially has a conscience, cares about your cause. If they do, then fine. And often it takes a long time to get to that point. And you do have to do those demonstrations, the civil rights movement that wasn't achieved. These people that appeared peaceful on the surface, yes, they got to that point of being peaceful. The number of uprisings that happened in apartheid South Africa to get to where the country is today and to get to Nelson Mandela being freed, they couldn't have achieved that solely through peace.
0: You're suggesting that the trigger event for change to happen is some form of violence is the riot of individuals. But then the next question is, is it the riot slash the fire in the belly which makes legislation? Or is it the economic, financial, geopolitical fallout from these protests? So for instance, like apartheid South Africa, alongside the violence, there were like scores of sanctions directed towards South Africa. I'd argue that was extremely impactful and it's impactful to the point where when you're looking at the human rights or the experience of people in a sovereign nation it's very difficult to be violent it's very difficult to actually step in and invade and invade another country's sovereignty that's when you have the more non-violent forms of challenging the system protesting etc that's when it's so effective I argue that it's the step afterwards whereby actually we can't always be violent you can't always be violent because it can lead to a massive war it will lead to more deaths. It will lead to people arguing, et cetera, and there, there being no end.
2: I think that's a super interesting point, but I'm just thinking about, like, I guess there's obviously different forms of protest. There's, like, wars, et cetera. Does the average person have that power to make to make a kind of economic sanction that, say, a president of, of a Western country is going to feel?
0: So I would say it does. I'll give you an example. Let's say I work for a major investment bank. And I'm a director at this investment bank. And I'm about to close a deal with a massive, massive Russian company. However, me as an individual on a moral level disagree with the war in Ukraine. I say no as a director from this investment bank. I'm not doing a transaction with, with, with this company. That could be £20 billion. It could be £30 billion. If every single individual director at a load of investment banks all make the same decision, that could be £200 billion. Pounds worth of money or commerce stops straight away from one individual act. They ain't so,
2: gonna do that though. The average person isn't an investment banker. The
0: average person works with that director. The average person is in the same team, is in the same floor, has the conversations. One simple act for one individual can definitely have a, a knock-on effect.
2: I just want to get your say on like these two quotes. The first one is, we have touched the limit of public demonstration nothing but militant action is left to us now and that was from a suffragette and then i think it's a malcolm and it's uh, willing to participate in the democratic process but if the democratic process doesn't work if we can't get equal rights human rights through the democratic process then willing to appeal to the bullet. And i think that's from one of his most popular speeches like the ballot or the bullet. those kind of quotes is what makes me emphasize mostly to chinny side because i feel like we've seen So many people try the good way, try to engage the way that we're told to. And I have so much sympathy for people who do this and it's just not working. And I appreciate that, yes, everyone does have some sort of agency and some sort of say in the society. But I also think it's interesting that the example that you use is a director at an investment bank, which I would argue doesn't represent the general masses.
0: You spoke about two individuals who expressed these opinions in the twentieth century? Did they achieve their goal? Yes and no. The issue still persists. Malcolm X was about in the sixties, yeah. He's a saying a but shoot back, whatever, defend whatever. But like the issue still persists. So I think if you look at it from a very literal sense, could you argue that no, his stance didn't work and his stance wasn't wasn't very successful? Could you argue that this? This is more of a rhetorical question because. I think it's such a politically charged answer for me to say anything too mad.
1: <laughs> with Malcolm X, though, he was met with violence himself, right? And they tried to silence him. They also tried to silence Martin Luther King Jr. But... Their legacies live on. I don't think they were successful in that, and also at that point, like black people didn't have basic human rights, like and they were trying everything. Nobody was listening. I don't see how that point could have been gotten to if we didn't go through the fire, as it were.
2: Fire.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that too. <laughs> similar point with the suffragettes as well. Like they wouldn't have gotten to that point if not for widening the access to other women and being quote unquote violent. Like it just had to be done. Whilst I would say yeah peaceful protests are part of the process it can't happen without the previous language of, of the unheard being said western governments only really listen once there's something going on there's something at stake reputations at stake we've all seen the picture of jeremy corbyn being dragged away from a protest carrying the you know the stop apartheid picket sign but if there was not any uprising or anything like that would they have just assumed oh they must be fine with it and just not In short, I
0: actually don't disagree with you, but me agreeing with you, I think ties into the debate and helps answer the question very directly. Your suggestion was that if it wasn't for that initial spark, that initial spark of violence, nothing would have happened. But I'm assuming you're also saying that with that spark of violence, with that aggression, there are other acts of peaceful protest, i.e. Jeremy Corbyn, which also helped along the way. Is that what you're saying? Well,
1: the way that he was dragged by the police we <laughs> think that it was a peaceful... They reacted with violence to Jeremy Corbyn, so I don't think they would have classed it as a as a peaceful protest if he was dragged away like that. I
0: would say the response from, from the oppressors or from the police officers was violent. I would say that Jeremy Corbyn's stance was, was non-violent and was actually peaceful. And if you take in everything collectively, i.e. marches, riots... People dying, Jeremy Corbyn, the street picketing, it did work. So peaceful protests in the example you provided do work. They are necessary in the whole grand scheme of achieving a goal. And the example you literally provided allowed me to answer that without me having to open my mouth. (laughs) I
1: don't understand. I said that it wouldn't have happened if not for the violence. So if there's no violence, then what is there?
2: They need each other. That's what you're both saying. It's basically a chicken and the egg situation. It's so interesting that in these examples that we have, there's always examples of both. There's Malcolm and there's MLK. There's suffragists and suffragettes. But I think you'll find that a lot of people did kind of sit in the middle. They were both. However, where I would say that I'm less leaning to Chash's side is that if you were gonna look at a peaceful protest, purely peaceful protest, we will be waiting till kingdom come. Similarly, I don't think a purely violent protest would be able to, you know, make much way. The issue is that I think with a peace, it gets to that point where it's like, you're, you're not hearing us.
0: I feel like we're not answering the question. Do peaceful protests work? I'm saying peaceful protests do work.
2: With violence.
0: No, I'm saying they work. And the question is, what, what do we mean by work? Get a legislative change. Is it expressing frustration? Is it educating? Is it disseminating information? Or is it to be used as a tool with violent protest? If you're looking at it in a wider context, yes, they definitely do work because it could be a tool or could be the, the main fear. None of the arguments or, or questions which have been posed have excluded the presence of a peaceful protest in any form.
1: But the conversation happens because... Of that event, so it's linked to that. I mean, they're not going to be protesting like they're saying, "Hey, hey, we're ready to talk," and they're still going to be protesting. They're like, "Okay, we can drop our stuff now. Now we can have a conversation," because that's the aim of the of the violent protest. Yeah, because you can't fight
0: forever. Like the way you're framing it, people upset, people are frustrated. They went straight to war. But there was no protest. There was no debate. There was nothing in between. There's always something in between. And if there's anything in between or alongside. It argues that peaceful protests do work because they're part of the vehicle to get to the end. Do they work, not do they work as a main vehicle? So do they work? Yes. Do they work as a main vehicle? Maybe. Do they work
2: as a main vehicle in contrast to violent protests being the main vehicle?
0: I would say no, Haiti being an example, looking at the economy and how they are now, unfortunately, even though I, I love empathize, sympathize, with their plight, left fire, I would say no.
2: Okay, so are you throwing the towel then?
0: No, sorry. Nothing works as the absolute vehicle. You need both. To say that one component to this vehicle doesn't work is fundamentally incorrect because we've never seen anything over the course of history, politically, whatever, as just being one, one thing.
2: It's an interesting uh, interpretation of the question. <laughs> if I phrase this as, do violent protests work? How would that change?
1: your starts both of you i would agree because at the end of the day it's the spark like if you don't have the start gun you're not going to run i would also
0: agree because it's part of the vehicle
2: going forward let's draw this to (laughs) to an end because i feel like we're just going to be driving in this vehicle i know i was coming back on tash more and i think that's just because i'm actually like a proponent of peace one of my favorite musicals is um, Les Miserables, spoiler alert, sorry. The boys that kind of ran the barricade, like pretty much all but one died. But the thing is they actually did overthrow the king like in in real life. And I think people kind of reference the French a lot because that's something that they've been doing. They've like been rioting. And it's like, we're sitting here in London uh, maybe like an hour, two hour train away And we're just allowing things to happen. We're allowing our prime ministers to be an absolute party animal. Literally him and Nick Cannon, like going back, back and forth. (laughs) How many children can we have? While I would hope that peace would be the answer, I think it's so hard when we're dealing with who we're dealing with. However, I'm gonna have to come to a conclusion on who convinced me the most today. Earlier on, Tash, wallet that I will let you finish. And the rule is, if it's convincing enough, you steal 10 seconds from your opponent's closing statement. And I think it was the point about the sanctity of life. So Tash, you have 40 seconds. Chidi, you have 20 seconds. It's time for the closing statements.
0: The debate ties down to where you want to draw that line. And for me and for many people, protesters, that human lives, well being, physical, social, mental, whatever. And whenever that is crossed, cat cannot justify anything. And the second point to understand is that things do not operate in a vacuum. You need to look at things wider. And even as for a short term goal, small one small smidgen, the peaceful protest can work.
1: Sometimes, we know when people say people died for our freedom, unfortunately, human loss has to happen in order for progression to happen in our society. The French, yeah, they got rid of their monarchy. How? Through violence.
2: It's really, really tough. I actually hate death. I don't want people to die. I hate the fact that I've come to this conclusion, but I just feel like I don't think I've been convinced enough that like, for example, I think before, I had the impression that, yeah, peaceful protests do work, but they'll just take time and time and time. And I was like, you know, as I said, who has that time? But I'm also thinking of the amount of lives that are lost right now, even without protesting, due to people being oppressed, whether it's like mental health, physical health, like we don't actually live in a fair world. And I think if there needs to be like a kind of, I don't really like the word sacrifice, but like maybe like a short term loss, to prevent more losses down the line, then surely that is actually causing the least amount of harm to the most amount of people. And so for that reason, Chinny, you have won. The conversation does not stop here. Follow us on Instagram at TheMotion underscore, tweet us your thoughts at TheMotionPod underscore, send us an email, TheMotionPodcast at gmail.com and listen to our radio show every Sunday live on Wizard Radio from 5pm. Be blessed, stay safe and have a wonderful week.
1: plus.